If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History From the nightmarish creations of Hieronymus Bosch to the intricate flying machines of Leonardo da Vinci, the Renaissance was a time of experimentation and cultural exploration. Speaking to Charlotte Hodgman, on today's episode, our guest is art critic and writer Jonathan Jones, who's here to take a closer look at this period of seismic change and to explore the enduring significance of this pivotal time in history. So, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. When we're talking about the Renaissance, just to kind of put it in context, when are we actually talking about? We could spend the whole podcast just talking about that, couldn't we? My book begins at the beginning of the 15th century, begins circa 1400 and ends in, I think, 1608. In fact, actually, it begins in the year 1434 and ends in 1608. I even joke about trying to find the first day of the Renaissance and the last day of the Renaissance. And so I started in 1434 with Jan van Eyck's great painting, the Arnolfini Portrait, which is in London's National Gallery, and which is in many ways, well, it's certainly a fantastic starting point, I think, because van Eyck, it's arguably the first true perspective view of the inside of someone's house. It's real and realistic, you know, you have this couple standing there in their bedroom, really, although it's very formal. 
but there's light coming through this window. So it's him, we're in 15th century Bruges. It's as fresh and as real as if we were standing in the room with these two people. That's interesting because I think most people associate the Renaissance with Italy and you sort of started it elsewhere, haven't you? How did the Renaissance sort of start and spread and where did it go and how did it differ according to different countries um, across Europe? This is the other way that I set out to be different. My book treats the Renaissance as a Europe-wide phenomenon. I don't actually separate Italy in the same way at all. I don't see Italy as unique. I think that many of the things that are happening in the Renaissance are happening right across Europe, at both ends of Europe at the same time. There are trade connections going back to the early Middle Ages between Bruges in modern Belgium, in what was then Burgundy, and Florence and Venice and Lucca and other Italian cities. There were these trade connections that were centuries old. And there, Arnolfini is an Italian merchant based in Bruges, in Van Eyck's painting. And there are many other Italians in Bruges. And so that's one reason, is because of the trading. I think it would be a sort of a, a rather dry thing to have a book that said, oh, the Renaissance was, it would be a hypey thing, it would be a cheap thing to say, oh, actually, Jan van Eyck was the greatest genius of the Renaissance and it was really Northern Europe was better than Florence and scoring points like that. But that's not what the book does either. What I think is that there's something very striking and strange. If at the beginning of the 15th century, perspective, which means a method of showing a scene, painting a scene, so that it's a real space. It's about creating the illusion of a real space on a flat surface. This is, at the time, it was a miracle to do that. It suddenly looked like you were looking through a window. When you looked at a Renaissance painting, you were looking through a window onto a real world, a three-dimensional world. This was kind of magic. But that happens at both ends of Europe at the same time separately. In Florence, it happened in a very theoretical way, where you have two architects, actually, Filippo Brunelleschi and Leon Battista Alberti, both kind of theorise perspective painting. And you can see in early Florentine Renaissance paintings, this is all in Florence, they have a sort of almost cumbersome experimental quality where they are experimenting with perspective. At the same time, or actually slightly earlier, Jan van Eyck just paints the Arnolfini portrait. He just paints in perspective and also in oil paint, which they hadn't got around to doing in, in Italy yet. And he does all this, you know, no one knows really how he had the idea and, and how the, the Flemish painters have the idea. So to me, what's happening is that it's about the European mind. There is something very profound happening in psychology that makes people all over Europe suddenly start wanting to see the real world as a real space with, you know, sometimes almost extraordinary detail that had never been done before. This hadn't been done before. We often think of the Renaissance as being about the rediscovery of antiquity, which in Italy it certainly was, you know, the rediscovery of ancient Greece and Rome and everything being influenced by them. But the Greeks and Romans had never understood perspective in the way that they did in 15th century Europe. They had it. They could do it, actually. If you look at Roman paintings, Roman frescoes and even mosaics, when they want to show something, they can do a lot of things about what's called foreshortening, using shadow to make figures appear solid. And when they want to, they can show deep space, but they didn't really want to. They didn't really care about it. So in a Roman painting, you might get a little bit that's in perspective, but then oh, they'll just destroy that perspective in the interest of decoration. They didn't see it as a window on a three-dimensional world. 
which Renaissance artists are obsessed with. The Renaissance is obsessively disciplined and coherent and scientific about this idea of depicting a three-dimensional world on a flat surface. And this clearly has to do with cognition and thinking and mentality that they, they are actually thinking about the world in a new way. And it's related to scientific developments and I think to economic developments. I mean, in the end, to put it crudely, what have Bruges, Venice, Florence got in common? They're all merchant cities and there is essentially a new class of merchants who have grown up within the medieval world, but who really are pushing at the edges of it, the constraints of it. And they want to see their reality in art. They want to see tangible reality in art. They want to see towns in art and cities in art, but they don't want to see just God in art. That's the point. Ultimately, I think that today it's slightly lost sight of that the Renaissance was actually a great sort of rebellion, a great intellectual freeing liberation, because they were actually saying, we don't just want to be depicting God all the time. We don't want to have endless religious art. We don't want our lives only to be religious. We want something else. We want, we want to see this life, this world. That's why my book is called Earthly Delight. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Would people at the time have known that they were living in this kind of cultural kind of revolution in the Renaissance? Would they refer to it as such? That's a really good question. The word Renaissance, the use of that word, it was coined in the 19th century. And it was coined by, I think the first person to use it may have been the French historian Michelet. And then Burkhart popularises it and people like Walter Pater in England. So it's, it's very much a 19th century word. Obviously, it's French for rebirth. But they did have a concept of it, yes. In Italy, they definitely had a concept of it at the time. They didn't use the word Renaissance, but there's a very famous passage by 
Alberti, in Alberti's book On Painting, which he had explains about perspectives to people, he has a preface addressed to Filippo Brunelleschi. Brunelleschi is the great architect who built the dome on Florence Cathedral. You know, that's what he's most famous for. But he also helped to invent perspective painting. So Alberti addresses Filippo Brunelleschi and he says, you know, my dear Filippo, when I came back to this city from the long exile in which the Albertis had been, I was stunned to see all the things that are going on and that you and our friend Donatello and other artists are not just rivaling but equaling antiquity and that the world has not stopped producing genius as it did in older days. So he really is talking about a cultural revolution and he's very, very proudly saying that. And then in the 16th century in Florence, Giorgio Vasari was court artist and architect to Cosimo I de Medici, Duke of Florence. So Vasari wrote this book, The Lives of the Artists, which is still in print and which is still read and amazing and it's still fantastically readable. But we think of Vasari as a collection of biographies. You know, he tells the lives of Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and they're full of incident and anecdote. But if you look at the whole book, it is actually a history. It's a history of the rebirth and development of art in, in Italy from the time of Giotto to his own time, climaxing with Michelangelo. And Vasari definitely thinks of this and writes about it as a renaissance and a cultural transformation and revolution, or or certainly a revolution in art. I don't suppose he's interested in any wider meaning of what that might be, but he's really, I think, the first, he might be the first historian who wrote about the idea of progress, because it's a book about progress. It's all about how, you know, there were these crude medieval artists, and then they started to gradually learn various skills and get better and better and better until you get to Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. So they did have a concept of it, yes. You touched on it briefly earlier, but what was needed for the Renaissance to happen? What was this kind of perfect storm of things? You mentioned economics and and things like that. What was needed for this to happen? I think you'd ultimately say the growth of towns. You'd have to say that because although Renaissance art eventually became popular at courts and all over Europe and, you know, became an art of the court, it's pretty clear that its origins were in towns and cities. So the growth of cities in, in Europe, which which obviously goes back to the 11th century, you know, medieval Europe. I think, I think medieval Europe, it had a very almost primitive conception of what it was, of its own structure. You know, you've got feudal society, you've got knights, and then you've got peasants and serfs, and then you've got the church. And the church, with its monasteries and its convents, is extremely powerful. But that whole conception of life of medieval Christendom, I think was it was always at odds with reality because as soon as you had any kind of social complexity, that simple Christian feudal medieval vision would start to be sort of undermined. And you see that in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Boccaccio's stories, which come from the 14th century. You can see that they're describing all kinds of naughtiness going on if you like and people are not behaving in ways that are just explained by Christianity and explained by the medieval worldview. The second thing that I think is really important which if you like brings the Renaissance to its head is Columbus crossing the Atlantic in 1492 which brought in such a new sense of what the world was and what humanity might be. It was like landing on the moon. Probably more important than landing on the moon. Again medieval Europe 
has such a limited conception of geography. One thing I actually claim in the book is that they had a clearer idea of the geography of hell and of purgatory and of heaven than they did of the physical earth. And, you know, I think that's true because you read Dante's Divine Comedy has unbelievably precise topography of the other world and the next life. You know, obviously Dante is a genius and and that in itself, his ability to think that that might in itself be pointing towards, you know, Renaissance science and perspective and things. So when Columbus suddenly sails across the Atlantic thinking he's going to reach China and open up a new trade route to China and stumbles on the New World, and then Amerigo Vespucci, who, not coincidentally, is a Florentine and has access to the Florentine education and that sophisticated intellectual culture of Florence, Amerigo Vespucci follows in Columbus's footsteps and it's Amerigo who realises this is a new continent, the New World, and that's why it's called America, as everyone, it's named after Amerigo Vespucci. I argue in the book that this had massive consequences in art, in fact. What kind of influence did the church have over the Renaissance? The 19th century historians who discovered the Renaissance thought it was a rebellion against the church and against Christianity, and they thought it was the birth of modern secular society, which they were writing in the 19th century, which is obviously a very confident age, about, you know, confident about science, confident about progress, and they trace it back to the Renaissance. That's been hugely overturned by modern historians and art historians. And I think it's been overturned too much. I think art historians today, obviously, if you count the number of altarpieces, you could show that the vast majority of Renaissance art was religious art. And, you know, and that things like Botticelli's Primavera, the classical pagan stuff was just a tiny proportion in comparison to religious art, which still went on. One story that's fascinating is the early... Florentine artist Filippo Lippi, Fra Filippo Lippi. He was a Carmelite friar, but it seems pretty clear that that wasn't a vocation. He didn't have a religious vocation. He was very poor, and his parents put him in the Carmelite convent in Florence. But he became Cosimo de Medici's favourite artist, and Cosimo seems to have protected him. And he was an outrageous character. There are all sorts of outrageous stories about his antics. But the most outrageous story is that when he was painting a religious painting in a convent in Prato near Florence, fell in love with... I'm going to tell it in a nice way. He fell in love... Well, no, I mean, it is... He he met... (laughs) He met a a novice nun called Lucrezia Butti and they ran off together. She's a novice nun and he's a friar and they ran off together. The thing about that story is it's true. It's not a story made up by Vasari or something. There are legal documents that were discovered and which actually, you know, demonstrate this is true. And it really happened. And obviously, how did he get away with that? Because he was protected by by the Medici family. And the reason for that is because he was a brilliant artist. And not only that, but it's very tempting to think that Lucrezia Butti appears in his paintings. You can't prove that. But there's a romantic idea that she's the Madonna in one of his most famous paintings, which is in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. And, and not only that, but their son is one of the angels, the little child angels. And it's kind of a lovely story, but it's a very intimate. She seems to appear in other paintings as well. I think it's basically true. But And it also, it's breaking out. The religion and real life are coming together, that the Madonna's a real woman, a desirable woman. Leonardo da Vinci, 
boasts in his notebooks, he says that he painted a Madonna for a private religious use. But the man who commissioned it brought it back to him and said, can you change it? Because I'm finding it too attractive, basically. <laughs> and it's confusing me at prayer. I mean, this is what... This, Leonardo's very proud of this. He's obviously he's, he's, he's boasting because he's saying this is the power of art, <laughs> the power of the painter. And when it comes to the church, Vasari's, in the first edition of The Lives of the Artists, published in 1550 in Florence, Vasari says Leonardo da Vinci was so heretical a mind that he didn't believe in any religion at all and he preferred to be a philosopher than a Christian. This was removed in the second edition because it was a pretty incendiary statement. But Vasari says it's quite casually, in fact, in 1550. I think that if you look at Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks in any depth, you believe this. I believe this. I don't, again, you know, not all historians agree. I mean, you know, Martin Kemp, the great sort of Leonardo da Vinci expert, thinks that he believed in a God in some sense. One example is that he writes at length about how it's impossible for a spiritual being to speak. You know, a spirit can't speak. How can a spirit speak? Because it doesn't have a tongue, it doesn't have lungs, without air. Because Leonardo did anatomical dissections, you know. He dissected tongues and he dissected the human body. So he said, well, I've looked at the human body just to speak is a physical thing. So a spiritual being could be a demon or an angel. Can't. He's taking a radically rationalist, materialist view of things there. And then he also was obsessed with fossils. Leonardo was the first person to understand what fossils are. And he was fascinated by the question of how can there be seashells preserved on high mountaintops? He dismisses the idea that they were put there by celestial influences. And even more provocatively, he repeatedly and at length refutes the idea that they could have been put there by the flood, the biblical flood, the deluge. No, he says that's nonsense, complete nonsense. It's funny writing about Leonardo in history because I think if, if you, you read him, at times he just seems to be a man from Mars. The fossils thing is incredible. He's thinking not only about fossils, he collects fossils, but he understands their place in geology because he looks at stratification, the stratification of rocks. And he puts this in his paintings very beautifully. But the stratification of rocks, i.e. the fact that rocks have been laid down over huge amounts of time, one layer upon another, and in the sedimentary rocks where you find fossils, you can see these strata. He writes about that, and that's one of the reasons he says it can't have been the flood, because he says, look, they appear in different strata. I mean, this is the kind of thing that 19th century scientists were arguing about. This is when it became mainstream science when it became recognised in science what fossils are and what they mean, it quite quickly led to Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Leonardo anticipates a lot of that in his notebook. And also he barely ever mentions the divine in his notes. He seems to be incredibly ahead of his time. Well, I don't know, but if it's possible to think something, then it's possible to think something, isn't it? Again, this is about the Renaissance as cultural history. Um, do we see the Renaissance sort of spreading outside of Europe at all? Or was it quite confined well, of course, this was a time of huge sort of interaction with the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire, one of the triggers of the Renaissance is the conquest of Constantinople by the Ottomans in the 15th century. And then the Ottoman Empire is always there kind of politically threatening Europe. But at the same time, there is definitely there's a lot of trade and a lot of links. And of course, this is also the time when the Portuguese and Spanish, it's not only before Columbus goes 
sails right across the Atlantic, they've already charted and they're working their way around Africa and trading with African kingdoms like Benin. And there's art, African art. I actually argue in the book that Bosch might not only have encountered Africans in Antwerp, but also could have seen African artworks because there were these West African artists. They were trading with Portugal and that they made beautiful, but also kind of quite very highly imaginative, bulbous, peculiar ivory sculptures, which have a a salt holder in them. So they were used as salt cellars in Europe. That was how African art first reached Europe. I speculate that the spindly, strange architecture in Bosch and and the weird artefacts, some of the strange things in Bosch could actually have been influenced by encountering African art, but that's completely unprovable. But it is proven and true. When Albrecht Dürer went to Antwerp and to Brussels and Dürer came from Nuremberg, and he saw, because the reason he went up to the Netherlands was actually he was on his way to Aachen for the coronation of the new Holy Roman Emperor Charles V for employment reasons. But anyway, he's there and he sees the treasures that have been brought back from Mexico, basically been sent back by Cortes after the destruction of Mexico City and the destruction of the Aztec Empire. Fantastic Aztec artworks have come to Europe, some of which probably still survive in museums and others which were melted down and destroyed and you know but some do survive obviously all Aztec art that survives comes from made it to Renaissance Europe in some way anyway Dürer was absolutely overwhelmed by this and he writes he wrote an account of his travels and he and he writes I was filled with awe at the craftsmen of this new land the things of beauty they created this is unique there's no other record of a European artist writing with excitement, real excitement, not just respect, but, you know, excitement about non-European art, completely non-European art. I mean, they liked Islamic art because the rugs, carpets, you know, there's a type of Middle Eastern rug design known as a Holbein carpet because it appears in Holbein's ambassadors. It's on the tabletop. And that's, you know, that was obviously a common thing. But I think the way I put it was that in... Encountering the rest of the world, Europe discovered itself. I think it is European, the Renaissance. I think that's historically true. <laughs> and it is about Europe interacting with the world. What I think is it's a moment of openness and genuinely of curiosity and discovery. There were two sides to the period. In the Americas, in Africa, the Portuguese and Spanish started dealing in slaves quite quickly. And, you, you know, taking slaves across to the Americas, that, so there's that brutality. But that's not in the art. Renaissance art is, doesn't have that. It's very, it's very alive to things. Artist Dürer portrayed African the same respect and curiosity that he brings to everyone else, to all his other art. Andrea Mantegna, too, was someone who seemed to be actually fascinated by otherness and difference. And, you know, he actually portrays Africans a lot. It's not like the era, the later era. It's, it has no connection really with the later era of European colonialism and Victorian racism. At this time, these are just distant worlds and they're interested and fascinated. And I think that there's a relativism that's at the heart of the Renaissance. Obviously, you've chosen a year to end the book. When was that and what brought the Renaissance to an end? Because I think the Renaissance was relativising religion and defying 
aspects of the Christian heritage. I think it comes to end, especially in Italy, uh, very clearly comes to an end with the Counter-Reformation. So you've got these different currents. I mean, it's it's complex, obviously. When we say Renaissance, Renaissance Europe was also Reformation Europe. And so, and I think see some of the unanchoring of tradition that's going on in the 15th century, Renaissance ideas helps, of course, it helps to bring about Martin Luther's protest against indulgences in 1517 that starts the Reformation. I mean, I'm talking about art history because obviously as an art critic, I see it from that point of view. But art historians especially do tend to talk about religions if it's all one thing. But obviously there's not a Protestant belief that starts in the 16th century is totally different and its attitude to art is totally different. So, you know, in Catholicism, art is incredibly important that it is an instrument of worship. For Martin Luther and, and for Calvinists, art in churches is idolatry and the whole cult of Mary. I mean, it's it's very destabilising. One of the most shocking paintings, actually, in terms of religiosity is The Dead Christ by Holbein, which shows Christ just dead in the tomb with no sign of resurrection. Dostoevsky saw this in the 19th century and said, you could lose your faith looking at that painting. It terrified him. And I think that came out of the Reformation, out of the anxieties of the Reformation at a time when, you know, idols are being destroyed and, and the whole tradition of religious painting is being rejected in a large part of Europe. So anyway, you have the Counter-Reformation. Eventually, the, the Catholic Church in Italy, there was no Catholic Church before. It was all one church, wasn't it? It was Christendom. So Christendom breaks into the Catholic Church, has the Council of Trent to really renew it, look at look hard at itself and work out how it can renew itself. So the Counter-Reformation then transforms religion in Southern Europe. So the Counter-Reformation, that in Southern Europe, in Italy, the heart of the Renaissance world, the Counter-Reformation, it chilled things. And artists had to toe the line much more. And also the commissions were much more intensely religious. That was the art critic and writer Jonathan Jones. Jonathan's most recent book, Earthly Delights, A History of the Renaissance, is out now, published by Thames and Hudson. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.